Chapter 13 of The Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roland Magyar in Orlando, Florida. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 13 The Evolution of the World. The Notion of Creation. Miracles. Creation of the whole universe and its various parts, creation of substance, cosmological creation, deism, one creative day, creation of separate entities, five forms of ontological creationism, theory of evolution, one, monistic cosmogony, beginning and end of the world, the infinity and eternity of the universe, space and time, universum perpetuum mobile, entropy of the universe, two, Monistic Geogony, History of the Inorganic and Organic Worlds. 3. Monistic Biogeny, Transformation and the Theory of Descent, Lamarck and Darwin. 4. Monistic Anthropogeny, Origin of Man. The greatest, vastest, and most difficult of all cosmic problems is that of the origin and development of the world, the question of creation, in a word. Even to the solution of this most difficult world riddle, the 19th century has contributed more than all its predecessors. In a certain sense, indeed, it has found the solution. We have at least attained to a clear view of the fact that all the partial questions of creation are indivisibly connected, that they represent one single comprehensive cosmic problem, and the key to this problem is found in the one magic word, evolution. The great questions of the creation of man, the creation of the animals and plants, the creation of the earth and the sun, etc., are all parts of the general question. What is the origin of the whole world? Has it been created by supernatural power, or has it been evolved by a natural process? What are the causes and the manner of this evolution? If we succeed in finding the correct answer to one of these questions, we have, according to our monistic conception of the world, cast a brilliant light on the solution of them all and on the entire cosmic problem. The current opinion as to the origin of the world in earlier ages was almost universal belief in creation. This belief has been expressed in thousands of interesting, more or less fabulous legends, poems, cosmogonies, and myths. A few great philosophers were devoid of it especially those remarkable free thinkers of classical antiquity who first conceived the idea of natural evolution. All the creation myths, on the contrary, were of a supernatural, miraculous, and transcendental character, incompetent, as it was, to investigate for itself the nature of the world and its origin by natural causes. The undeveloped mind naturally had recourse to the idea of miracle. In most of these creation myths, anthropism was blended with the belief in the miraculous. The Creator was supposed to have constructed the world on a definite plan, just as man accomplishes his artificial constructions. The conception of the Creator was generally completely anthropomorphic, a palpable anthropistic creationism. The Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, as he is called in Genesis and the Catechism, is just as humanly conceived as the modern creator of Agassi and Renke, or the intelligent engineer of other recent biologists. Entering more fully into the notion of creation, we can distinguish as two entirely different acts the production of the universe as a whole and the partial production of its various parts, in harmony with Spinoza's idea of substance, the universe, and accidents, or modes, the individual phenomena of substance. 
This distinction is of great importance, because there are many eminent philosophers who admit the one and reject the other. According to this creationist theory, then, God has made the world out of nothing. It is supposed that God, a rational but immaterial being, existed, one, by himself for an eternity before he resolved to create the world. Some supporters of the theory restrict God's creative function to one single act. They believe that this extra-mundane God, the rest of whose life is shrouded in mystery, created the substance of the world in a single moment, endowed it with the faculty of the most extensive evolution, and troubled no further about it. This view may be found, for instance, in the English deists in many forms. It approaches very close to our monistic theory of evolution, only abandoning it in the one instance in which God accomplished the creation. Other creationists contend that God did not confine himself to the mere creation of matter, but that he continues to be operative as a sustainer and ruler of the world. Different modifications of this belief are found, some approaching very close to pantheism and others to complete theism. All these and similar forms of belief in creation are incompatible with the law of the persistence of matter and force. That law knows nothing of a beginning. It is interesting to note that E. Dubois Raymond has identified himself with this cosmological creationism in his latest speech on Neo-Vitalism, 1894. It is more consonant with the divine omnipotence, he says, to assume that it created the whole material of the world in one creative act unthinkable ages ago in such wise that it should be endowed with inviolable laws of control, the origin and the progress of living things that, for instance, here on earth, rudimentary organisms should arise from which, without further assistance, the whole of living nature could be evolved. From a primitive bacillus to the graceful palm wood, from a primitive micrococcus to Solomon's lovely wives or to the brain of Newton. Thus we are content with one creative day, and we derive organic nature mechanically, without the aid of either old or new vitalism. Dubois Raymond here shows, as in the question of consciousness, the shallow and illogical character of his monistic thought. According to another still prevalent theory, which may be called ontological creationism, God not only created the world at large, but also its separate contents. In the Christian world, the old Semitic legend of creation, taken from Genesis, is still very widely accepted. Even among modern scientists, it finds an adherent here and there. I have fully entered into the criticism of it in the first chapter of my Natural History of Creation. The following theories may be enumerated as the most interesting modifications on this ontological creationism. 1. Dualistic Creation God restricted his interference to two creative acts. First, he created the inorganic world, mere dead substance, to which alone the law of energy applies, working blindly and aimlessly in the mechanism of material things and the building of the mountains. Then God attained intelligence and communicated it to the purposive intelligent forces which initiate and control organic evolution. 2. Trialistic Creation God made the world in three creative acts. a. The creation of the heavens, the extraterrestrial world b. The creation of the earth, as the center of the world, and of its living inhabitants, and c. The creation of man, in the image and likeness of God. This dogma is still widely prevalent among theologians and other educated people. It is taught as the truth in many of our schools. 3. Heptameral creation, a creation in seven days, teste Moses. Although few educated people really believe in this mosaic myth now, it is still firmly impressed on our children in the biblical lessons of their earliest years. 
the numerous attempts that have been made, especially in England, to harmonize it with the modern theory of evolution have entirely failed. It obtained some importance in science when Linné adopted it in the establishment of his system and based his definition of organic species, which he considered to be unchangeable, on it. There are as many different species of animals and plants as there were different forms created in the beginning by the infinite. This dogma was pretty generally held until the time of Darwin, 1859, although Lamarck had already proved its untenability in 1809. 4. Periodic Creation At the beginning of each period of the Earth's history, the whole population of animals and plants was created anew, and destroyed by a general catastrophe at its close. There was as many general creative acts as there are distinct geological periods. The catastrophic theory of Cuvier, 1818, and Louis Agassiz, 1858. Paleontology, which seems to support this theory in its more imperfect stage, has since completely refuted it. 5. Individual Creation Every single man and every individual animal and plant does not arise by a natural process of growth, but is created by the favor of God. This view of creation is still often met with in journals, especially in the births column. The special talents and features of our children are often gratefully acknowledged to be gifts of God. The hereditary defects fit into another theory. The error of these creation legends and the cognate belief in miracles must have been apparent to thoughtful minds at an early period. More than 2,000 years ago, we find that many attempts were made to replace them by a rational theory and to explain the origin of the world by natural causes. In the front rank, once more, we must place the leaders of the Ionic school, Democritus, Heraclitus, Empedocles, Aristotle, Lucretius, and other ancient philosophers. The first imperfect attempts which they made astonish us, in a measure by the flashes of mental light in which they anticipate modern ideas. It must be remembered that classical antiquity had not that solid groundwork for scientific speculation which has been provided by the countless observations and experiments of modern scientists. During the Middle Ages, especially during the domination of the papacy, scientific work in this direction entirely ceased. The torture and the stake of the Inquisition ensured that an unconditional belief in the Hebrew mythology should be the final answer to all the questions of creation. Even the phenomena which led directly to the observation of the facts of evolution, the embryology of the plant and the animal, and of man, remained unnoticed, or only excited the interest of an occasional keen observer but their discoveries were ignored or forgotten. Moreover, the path to a correct knowledge of natural development was barred by the dominant theory of preformation, the dogma which held that the characteristic form and structure of each animal and plant were already sketched in miniature in the germ. Compare page 54. The science which we now call the science of evolution, in the broadest sense, is both in its general outline and its separate parts, a child of the 19th century, it is one of its most momentous and most brilliant achievements, almost unknown in the preceding century. This theory has now become the sure foundation of our whole world system. I have treated it exhaustively in my General Morphology, 1866, more popularly in my Natural History of Creation, 1868, and in its special application to man in my Anthropogeny, 1874. Here I shall restrict myself to a brief survey of the chief advances which the science has made in the course of the century. It falls into four sections, according to the nature of its object, that is, it deals with the natural origin of 1. the cosmos, 2. the earth, 3. terrestrial forms of life, and 4. man. 1. Monistic Cosmogony 
the first attempt to explain the constitution and the mechanical origin of the world in a simple manner by newtonian laws that is by mathematical and physical laws was made by immanuel kant in the famous work of his youth seventeen fifty five general history of the earth and theory of the heavens unfortunately this distinguished and daring work remained almost unknown for ninety years it was only disinterred in eighteen forty five by alexander humboldt in the first volume of his cosmos in the meantime the great french mathematician pierre laplace had arrived independently at similar views to those of kant and he gave them a mathematical foundation in his exposition du système du monde seventeen ninety six his chief work the mecanique celeste appeared a hundred years ago the analogous features of the cosmology of kant and laplace consist as is well known in a mechanical explanation of the movements of the planets and the conclusion which is drawn therefrom that all the cosmic bodies were formed originally by a condensation of rotating nebulous spheres this nebular hypothesis has been much improved and supplemented since but it is still the best of all the attempts to explain the origin of the world on monistic and mechanical lines it has recently been strongly confirmed and enlarged by the theory that this cosmogenic process did not simply take place once but is periodically repeated while new cosmic bodies arise and develop out of rotating masses of nebula in some parts of the universe in other parts old extinct frigid suns come into collision and are once more reduced to the heat generated to the condition of nebulae nearly all the older and the more recent cosmogenies including most of those which were inspired by kant and laplace started from the popular idea that the world had had a beginning hence according to a widespread version of the nebular hypothesis in the beginning was made a vast nebula of infinitely attenuated and light material and at a certain moment countless ages ago a movement of rotation was imparted to this mass given this first beginning of the cosmogenic movement it is easy on mechanical principles to deduce and mathematically establish the further phenomena of the formation of the cosmic bodies the separation of the planets and so forth this first origin of movement is du bois raymond's second world enigma he regards it as transcendental many other scientists and philosophers are equally helpless before this difficulty they resign themselves to the notion that we have here a primary supernatural impetus to the scheme of things a miracle in our opinion this second world enigma is solved by the recognition that movement is an innate and original a property of substance as is sensation the proof of this monistic assumption is found first in the law of substance and secondly in the discoveries which astronomy and physics have made in the later half of the century by the spectral analysis of bunsen and kirchhoff eighteen sixty we have found not only that the millions of bodies which fill the infinity of space are of the same material as our own sun and earth but also that they are in various stages of evolution we have obtained by its aid information as to the movements and distances of the stars which the telescope would never have given us moreover the telescope itself has been vastly improved and has in alliance with photography made a host of scientific discoveries of which no one dreamed at the beginning of the century in particular a closer acquaintance with comets meteorites star clusters and nebula has helped us to realize the great significance of the smaller bodies which are found in millions in the space between the stars we now know that the paths of the millions of heavenly bodies are changeable and to some extent irregular whereas the planetary system was formerly thought to be constant and the rotating spheres were described as pursuing their orbits in eternal regularity astrophysics owes much of its triumph to the immense progress in other branches of physics of optics and electricity and especially of the theory of ether 
and here again our supreme laws of substance is found to be one of the most valuable achievements of modern science we now know that it rules unconditionally in the most distant reaches of space just as it does on our planetary system in the most minute particle of the earth as well as in the smallest cell of our human frame we are moreover justified in concluding if we are not logically compelled to conclude that the persistence of matter and force has held good throughout all time as it does today through all eternity the infinite universe has been and is subject to the law of substance end of chapter thirteen part one